Welcome to the May 2014 episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Ailey Dalgan. This month, a new drug target for stress-related depression. Blockade of RED1 could potentially be a useful target for developing a novel class of antidepressants. How mathematical modeling could help reveal the best way to give anti-cancer treatments. Math can help us just narrow the search space such that we maybe only have to test three or four sketchers that are predicted to be best. Plus, gene therapy for ataxia, the risks of early antibiotic use, and a patient-centric research collaboration. But first, the mathematician versus the malignancy. Francisca Mijor is a scientist on a mission. She works at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, but she doesn't treat patients. She's not exactly trying to develop new cancer therapies either. Instead, Mihor is hoping to take existing cancer treatments that doctors have used for decades and make them work better. And she hopes to do that simply by changing the way they are administered. It's a lofty goal, but she has an ace up her sleeve. Mathematics. In a feature story in this month's issue of Nature Medicine, I profile Francisca Mihor and I look at her efforts to optimize the dosing and treatment schedules for cancer therapies. We spoke in her Boston office, and she started by explaining the status quo. Traditionally, cancer therapeutics are administered at a level that doesn't lead to dose-limiting toxicities, i.e. that are um, generally tolerated by patients. However, when the FDA decides on these dosing schedules, we don't necessarily know about all the mechanisms of resistance. So a new way to think about this problem is to revisit optimum dosing schedules using mathematical modeling once we know what the resistance mechanisms are. And you're taking this approach to look at a number of different applications. Let's talk about two of them. There's radiation and there's chemotherapy. Let's start with the chemotherapy. You laid this out in a couple papers in 2011 and 2012 for a specific drug in the application of lung cancer. Tell me about why you started to look at this situation and what the problem was and what the math could inform. In this particular example, we are looking at allotinib, which is a targeted drug against a specific mutation that arises in lung cancer. Um, it's a very effective drug because it targets specifically the difference between cancer cells and normal cells. However, um, the, this specific targeting of a molecular alteration enables the cell to change this drug target and evolve away from the selection pressure. This is a prime example of how mathematical modeling can help understand the dynamics of resistance um, and better administration strategies because we can predict responses to specific administration schedules and then identify the one that prolongs survival in patients. So nowadays erlotinib is generally taken one pill a day at a certain dose, 150 milligrams I believe is kind of the standard but the math suggests that's not necessarily the best. What, what did your math show? The math showed that it's, it would be better to administer a lower dose um, because sensitive cells can still respond at a lower dose. But in addition, you could um, add a high-dose pulse strategy such that you give a high-dose pulse twice a week followed by a low-dose continuous strategy. And this is predicted to minimize the evolution of resistance because it both reduces the growth rate of sensitive cells and in addition prevents the outgrowth of a resistant clone. And in fact, this idea is now being tested? Yes, it's tested in a phase one clinical trial at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, um, where we have enrolled a number of patients who are receiving this new optimized dosing strategy. 
Well, as we await the results of that trial, let's move on to your 2014 paper that you published earlier this year in Cell. Tell me about that one. In this paper, we decided to investigate radiation treatment response in glioblastoma patients. It's the most frequent and most aggressive primary brain cancer in humans. Um, It's aggressively treated with surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, but none of these strategies have been changed um, extensively over the last 50 years, and survival has not improved um, since the beginning of radiation administration. What we wanted to do was revisit the idea that you could differently time radiation Um, over the course of treatment for a patient with the goal of optimizing the efficacy of radiation. So we focused on proneural glioblastoma, which is a subset that's driven by abnormal PDGF signaling. Um, PDGF is the platelet-derived um, growth factor, which, which drives the abnormal proliferation of this type of cancer. Um, these tumors have a specific radiation response in that um, radiation allows tumor bulk cells to de-differentiate to a more radio-resistant state, a more cancer stem-like state. Um, we can now make a mathematical model of these processes and use a mathematical representation of this tumor and its growth dynamics to investigate the best radiation administration schedules. Currently, the schedule is Monday through Friday, two gray per day for six weeks. And the math says that there might be a better way to prevent the sensitive cells from turning into these resistant stem-like cells. Exactly. So the mathematical modeling suggests a series of optimized sketchers, which can then be tested in the mouse model and nicely enough showed superior behavior in the mouse model. So we can almost double the efficacy of each gray or each unit of radiation administered to this mouse model of proneural glioblastoma. And um, hopefully down the line we will be able to implement uh, such sketchers as clinic prospective clinical trials. The schedule kind of, it looks crazy actually. I mean it doesn't, it looks like you kind of threw darts on a board, but it's not random like that, right? No, it's not random. Um, it's the outcome of a stochastic optimization algorithm which predicts um, the efficacy of a specific dose administration schedule. So these are two very different examples. One is a targeted therapy that you take as a pill for lung cancer. The other is a radiation schedule for brain cancer. This approach of, of using math to try to optimize schedules, it clearly can be used across the cancer treatment landscape. What do you say to other people who are interested in taking this approach, both mathematicians but also the oncologists who might look at your work and say, hey, maybe there is a better way than, than what we're doing? Yeah, I think it's a very promising way forward. It it won't replace preclinical studies or in vitro or in vivo studies with mouse models, but I think it can aid in reducing the search space. Um, with every d- drug that we have, we have a large number of potential administration schedules, and it's too many to test even in a mouse trial with all of these different arms, and certainly too many, and plus it's unethical to try these things in humans. So I think math can help us just narrow the search space such that we maybe only have to test three or four sketchers that are predicted to be best and maybe to validate, predicted to be worst, um, instead of actually using a clinical trial strategy to identify the best sketcher. So I think it's a very promising approach, and, uh, and I hope that people will join in um, and help us address cancer in this way. Francisca Mihor. When you choose how much postage to use when you know what's the chance it will snow when you bet 
and you end up in debt. Oh, try as you may, you just can't get away from mathematics. Last month, AAV Life, a new biotech company based in Paris, France, announced that it had raised $12 million to advance a gene therapy for Friedrich's ataxia. The disease is the result of a mutation in a gene called Fertaxin, and it leads to impaired motor coordination that worsens over time. AAV Life's solution to the problem is to replace the malfunctioning Fertaxin gene with a healthy copy, and it proposes to do so using a viral delivery agent. Human trials are expected soon, but this approach has already shown incredible promise in mouse models. Hélène Puccio, a researcher at INSERM and a scientific co-founder of AAV Life, reported the preclinical findings in the May issue of Nature Medicine. So when we um, put back the gene uh, with the viral vector in the model by one intravenous injection, we see not only prevention of the uh, onset of the disease if this is done prior to the onset of the disease, but more importantly, we see when we treat uh, the animal at uh, seven weeks of age when it's already um, considered to be in heart failure, we get a very rapid uh, rescue and complete correction of the disease. Are they completely back to normal? Yes, so they're completely back to normal, not right away. Uh, One week after treatment, what we see is that they get 50% back of their cardiac function, and then over the next three, four weeks after treatment, they gain full uh, function recovery. So they get 100% of uh, what a normal mouse should have as uh, um, uh, cardiac function. So those are impressive results in the heart symptoms of Friedrich's ataxia. What about the other ways in which the disease manifests itself? And I'm thinking especially the neurological symptoms. So, um, yes, I mean, this is, of course, um, a very good question because uh, it's important to also treat the neurological uh, aspects. And so, first of all, the vector that we uh, used, uh, the viral vector that we used, is able to very well uh, target also the neuronal cells that are affected primarily in ataxia, that is the dorsal ganglia of the um, spinal cord. And because we have uh, good neurological models also developed for the disease, uh, we are um, obviously currently testing um, this uh, proof of concept in a neurological model. We're hoping to be able to get um, uh, some exciting results on that model also. Combining what you've seen in your mice together with the great advances that the field of gene therapy has made generally, you know, in other diseases beside Friedrich's ataxia, how confident are you that, that this approach can translate to the human situation? I'm extremely confident of um, the fact that this has good chance of going uh, and being successful in a clinical trial for two reasons. First of all, the mouse model that we have developed is very severe. It has absence of protection, so it's much more severe than the human heart. And what we've been able to show in this mouse model is that the fact that we can reverse the phenotype shows that the uh, cardiomyocytes that have complete absence of protection and are very badly off can uh, rapidly uh, reverse and gain fully their function to be able to correct the heart. The second reason why um, I think that this is very promising is that uh, in, in the gene therapy field in general, uh, there is uh, been an enormous amount of progress and there's actually a lot of gene therapy trials in clinic. And the vector that we uh, are planning to use is actually already in clinical trials for the central nervous system, so not for the heart, but for the central nervous system, and uh, does not seem to show any toxicity. So I am, I'm confident that we have all the uh, data that 
that will say that we should be able to be successful. Uh, but of course, without trying, we, we cannot, never know. And how soon do you think this could be in a phase one trial? If um, everything goes as planned, and um, we're hoping that we can maybe try to start the trial in uh, 2016. Ellen Puccio. Coming up, antibiotics and immune priming. But first, a protein that shrinks depressed brains. Ron Duman is a neuroscientist at Yale University. For years, he's been searching for new drug targets to treat depression. And lately, he's been seeing red. Red 1, that is. In the latest issue of Nature Medicine, Duman and his colleagues report that a protein called red 1, a known inhibitor of the mTOR pathway, is involved in the brain changes seen in rodents exposed to chronic stress. And this means that red 1 provides a new target for stress-related depression. Here's Ron Duman. Chronic stress did lead to an increased expression of RED1, both mRNA and protein levels, in the prefrontal cortex. We quickly then went to uh, studies to try to test the significance of that RED1. And what we found was when we caused an increase in levels of RED1 independent of stress, that the animals exhibited behavioral um, phenotypes similar to what we would see with chronic stress. The animals had an anxiety profile in several different models of anxiety that we used. And in addition to that, when we looked at um, the synaptic connections on neurons in the prefrontal cortex, we saw that in those animals where RED1 was overexpressed, there was also a decrease in the number of synaptic connections. So these show from rodents that RED1 is, is indeed upregulated and implicated in stress-induced synaptic loss and, and thus depressive behavior. Uh, you also looked at post-mortem brain tissue from people who had died after suffering from major depression. Do those samples from people actually back up what you saw in the, in the rodents? So when we looked at expression of red one um, in uh, samples from depressed and uh, matched non-psychiatric controls, we found that red one was indeed um, increased in the prefrontal cortex of, of depressed patients, consistent with the possibility that red one and inhibition of mTOR could contribute to atrophy of, of neurons and loss of connections in, in um, depressed patients. Okay, so you've got these post-mortem findings, you've got the preclinical findings, all implicating RED1 as this critical mediator of the neuronal loss and the depressive behavior. Do you think this would make a good drug target? Well, it's an interesting question, and, and I guess the first piece of data that would support that possibility was um, another series of studies that we had done in this paper where we tested whether or not animals with a knockout of RED1 would be differentially affected by um, repeated stress. And we found that that was the case, that um, animals um, with a deletion of RED1 uh, when exposed to the same chronic stress paradigm did not show a decrease in synaptic connections in the prefrontal cortex and also were resistant to the behavioral anhedonia that um, was observed in the wild-type animals where red one was shown. So that would be 
those data would be consistent with that possibility that blockade of RED1 could potentially be a useful target for developing a, a novel class of antidepressants. Are there any small molecule inhibitors of RED1, either on the market or, or in the pharma pipeline? That would have to be the next step. Yeah, there are no um, small molecule inhibitors. So RED1 works uh, by interacting with other proteins that then inhibit mTOR signaling. So it would be an inhibitor of this protein-protein interaction, which is certainly a very um, big area of development, and there are examples of inhibitors of protein-protein interaction. So certainly it would be doable. Ron Duman. His study on RED1 can be found in the May issue of Nature Medicine. It seems that most parents today try to shield their newborn babies from our dirty, germ-filled world. But germs can actually be good for newborns, especially in the first hours of life. A study in this month's Nature Medicine involving neonatal mice suggests that exposure to germ-killing antibiotics near the time of birth can alter immune cell development. And without the necessary immune defenses, namely a type of infection-fighting white blood cell called a neutrophil, young pups can become vulnerable to life-threatening disease. G. Scott Worthen is a neonatologist at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the senior author of the new study. Something about the birth process uh, within the first uh, day or so is associated with a marked increase in circulating neutrophils, those sentinels of an infection. And that process is completely abolished if those mice have been exposed to antibiotics previously. Now that you've linked the antibiotic therapy to the gut microbes, to the neutrophil response, thinking to the clinical setting where there are these neonatal care units where newborn babies are receiving antibiotic therapy, what can be done to help boost their neutrophils and and avoid sepsis short of stopping antibiotic therapy at such a young age? You're right to um, think about alternatives to that because the clinicians find that they must use antibiotics quite frequently. The uh, consequences of not using antibiotics when there is a sepsis episode beginning can be catastrophic as well. So there are several uh, maneuvers that we were able to use in the mouse to uh, alter this process. The first and simplest, and is actually used clinically, is to administer a uh, hematopoietic cytokine granulocyte colony stimulating factor, or GCSF. And that is used clinically in uh, patients whose bone marrow has been damaged by radiation or chemotherapy or bone marrow transplant, but it can also be used in the neonatal period, but its use has not caught on to the extent that we would anticipate. A second maneuver that that worked very well in the mouse was to transfer the microbial contents from the intestine of a normal mouse into this antibiotic-exposed mouse. 
Oh, so the fecal transplants that are gaining popularity as a treatment for C. difficile infections might actually be useful in this kind of setting? In the mouse, it clearly was. But bear in mind the difficulties. So these are the most fragile patients that are cared for probably in any clinical context. So the administration of a mixture of bacteria to those infants is fraught with hazard. But yes, we hold out the possibility that uh, such microbes, uh, if available in a properly characterized form, could be used to mitigate the effects of antibiotic treatment uh, in these infants. And the third intervention? The uh, final maneuver is to begin to understand the basic mechanisms by which commensal bacteria regulate this process. And we were fortunate in our 16S sequencing to see the appearance of a population of bacteria on day three in these mice that represents uh, some of the typical gram-negative enteric bacteria that are present in, in all of us, although In these mice, it was present to a much greater degree. One of the characteristics of these bacteria is their use of uh, lipopolysaccharide as a constituent of their cell walls. So we reasoned that this might be one of the signals that was used to drive this process. So uh, Dr. Deshmukh, who uh, was the first author on this paper, was able to administer tiny quantities of lipopolysaccharide into the stomach of these mice by the same gavage procedure used for the microbes. And this process also resulted in the appearance of neutrophils within the circulation, the increase in the plasma levels of granulocyte colony stimulating factor, and in fact results in conferred on these mice resistance to sepsis caused by a pathogenic gram-negative bacteria. So three options for how to perhaps undo the ills of the antibiotic therapy without having to completely abandon antibiotics and and all the good things that those drugs provide. Correct. G. Scott Worthen. We end this month now with a unique type of research pact. Nature Medicine's Nicolette Zeliot has the story. When we get sick, we often turn to the internet for answers about our illness. These days, people with chronic diseases are flocking to the online social network Patients Like Me, where they can exchange information with one another about their disease symptoms and responses to treatments. The online community is home to more than 250,000 members with 2,000 different conditions. Of course, the clinical information people share on Patients Like Me is not just valuable for the sick. It's also a potential goldmine for researchers who study the diseases represented on the site or who are developing drugs to treat those diseases. The whole purpose of patients like me is to deliver new information using the experience of the individual to improve basic problems in all of discovery. That's Jamie Haywood, a mechanical engineer who co-founded patients like me 10 years ago after his younger brother developed Lou Gehrig's disease. Last month, Patients Like Me began a unique five-year research collaboration with Genentech, the San Francisco-based biotech company owned by the Swiss drug giant Roche. 
In exchange for an undisclosed fee, Genentech now has access to nearly all of the information that patients share on the social networking site. It's not the first time Patients Like Me has partnered with the drug industry. In 2010, for example, Novartis partnered with Patients Like Me to develop an online community for organ transplant patients. In March, Novartis and Patients Like Me published the results of a study that tapped into that community to explore how those patients' quality of life differed from that of transplant recipients in the general population. But whereas previous efforts were short-term and project or problem-specific, Genentech is now gaining access to all of the information posted by Patients Like Me users, with the exception of any personally identifiable bits of data. Haywood calls this new service a global network access product. The global access product is about providing essentially patients as a real-time partner to any problem that the company faces. Haywood says that one of the diseases that Genentech is interested in is cancer. But because there are numerous subtypes of cancer, each of which often involves complex treatment regimens, tracking patients' experiences with the disease had long proven difficult for the site. We had to do some major upgrades to our system, and that's so that we can study the oncology experience and the side effects and the consequences of different drugs. By recruiting patients to be more active participants in the collection of health data, and by giving drug companies a window into the patient's experience, the partnership may start to shift the clinical research paradigm. Again, here's Jamie Haywood. This project is about us collaborating together to show how we can you know, connect the patient to every meaningful decision in the development process at the right time in the company. This is about, you know, how can the patients inform the process of developing therapeutics more effectively across the board. So, for anyone from the pharmaceutical industry who is listening to this, you'll want to watch this research collaboration closely. Because if it works out, patients like me might make a good partner for a company like you. For Nature Medicine, I'm Nicolette Zelliot. Well, that's it for this episode of the Nature Medicine podcast, but there's plenty more to be found in the May issue of the journal, including a longer discussion with Jamie Haywood about the Patients Like Me Genentech Research Collaboration, and a book review about the history of radioisotopes in biomedicine. All that and more can be found on our website, nature.com slash naturemedicine. Until next time, I'm Ailey Dalgan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>